Let's, let's pray together. Would you join me? Lord, you tell us in your word that when, wherever two or three are gathered, you're here. So, you know, we're not, we're not speaking to you a trillion light years away. We're talking to you right here. And Lord, since you're here, you're the most important, most glorious, most wonderful person in the room. And so, Lord, in great honor and with great devotion and love, all the songs that we've been singing are just are just words that we're using to try to express what we can't we can't quite how indebted we are to you Lord we just you're our only hope the only reason why we can look out of the front windshield of our future or the future of the human race there's only one reason why we can look out that windshield with hope And it's not our great intellect. It's not wonderful technology. There's only one reason we can look out there with hope. That's because you're there. So, Lord, for these next few moments while we open up your word to a section of your word that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, to wrap our hearts around, give us the help that we desperately need so that we can more firmly anchor our lives in your hope. Lord, for anybody who walked in here this morning without that hope or with something else as their hope, I pray that today's scripture passage, as hard as it is to wrestle with, would demonstrate very clearly there is no other hope but you. And I pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I hope you can see that in great faith... um, we, uh, we commissioned our artists to put up some panels to remind you of Eagles colors on both sides of the screen. So, thank you. Creative team, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I remember when I first moved here, um, my wife and I enjoyed going to estate sales, especially looking for anything that looks like it would have belonged in the Brady Bunch house. We love Brady Bunch furniture. So, we're going to estate sales. One of the best ones I've ever been to is in Medford Lakes. I mean, it was in this old cabin of a, of a house, and then it, it was wonderful. I remember we were driving around Medford Lakes. Um, a couple different times people have told me about the flood that happened in Medford Lakes. And oftentimes people from our church speak about it with, um, I don't know, um, a sense of worship that, you know, God really used our church to be kind of a gathering place and a resource center for people that were, I mean, that's a tough thing to go through. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful way that our church was there for, uh, for our community when we hit a time of need. And, you know, um, in my mind, you know, when I, you know, when I think about having a, you know, a flooded house, I've had a flooded basement or whatever. So in my mind, I was like, well, I mean, come on, how big of a deal? I've seen the little lake. How big of a deal could that have been? <laughs> okay. And then I, and then I drove by. Uh, up this one street, you know what street it is, I don't, I can't remember. Um, and there's a very clear evidence of a memory of just what happened. There's a canoe, right, wrapped around a tree about six feet off the ground. Am I wrong about that? 
And you go, that, right there. Now, I want you to just think, what would happen if all of a sudden the entire uh, city of Medford and Medford Lakes got amnesia and we lost our memories? And we walked up to that canoe and we were all looking around with no historical account of that event, but we had to sort of make up a bunch of reasons for how that canoe got wrapped around that tree. Can you imagine all the different theories that would come up, you know? A spaceship landed and the, you know... All the exhaust from the spaceship just pushed that canoe right around that tree, you know. Um, We would think that's ridiculous. No, all you'd have to do is just talk to somebody whose house got flooded and they will tell you exactly about it. They'll tell you what it felt like to go out and see the water coming up and hoping and assuming at some point it's going to crest and go back down. It has to. And then the water level kept going up, right? Today we reached the point in the account of Genesis... Um, that we hear about um, an event that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And you know, right underneath our feet, drilling you know, off of the shores of in the Gulf of Mexico and you know, multiple other places, we're drilling down and drawing up fossil fuels, and all those fossil fuels are the very clear and plain evidence of a, of a terrible worldwide catastrophe that buried the world that Noah had lived in before. It's hard for us to wrap our minds precisely around it. I mean, I'm going to, you know, we're going to look at the account in here and try to look at it from a few different angles. It's hard to wrap our minds around it, certainly. It's, it's, I think it's maybe even more difficult for us to wrap our hearts around it. What... What does it mean that our whole world was killed and buried by the God who we were just singing songs about? I I hope you can see that, you know, the hardest thing that you're going to do today is not putting down the 14 wings that you're going to eat later on. The hardest thing that we're going to do today is look at this account. I'm going to ask that you take out your copy of God's Word and stand to your feet. We're going to be in the, in the book of Genesis. Now, this is all one story, so we've got a fairly long section to read from. I didn't want to read through two and a half whole chapters, so we're going to pick the account up in chapter 7, verse 11. <clears throat> And we're going to go through uh, chapter 8. Here, this is God's word to you. This is, this is not start off once upon a time in a faraway land. We believe that the Bible was written through human authors by God's own hand. This is his account of what he did. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with him, entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird. According to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. 
And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open up our hearts like the pages of our Bibles are open. Take the words that are in here. Engrave them on our hearts. So that when we walk out of here, we will have gained something. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Noah was 600 years old. He was 600. You know how old that is? On, do you? <laughs> okay. Sometimes I'm going to try to draw some illustrations to try to help this because there's so many things that are different about this account in Genesis that it can feel like it's like long, you know, you think that George Lucas made this movie. 600 years old means that the day, it, it would be like Christopher Columbus's father being here today. Old. Noah was old. Of those 600 years, he'd given 120 years to building an ark. When God said, I'm not going to contend with man, 120 years are his days. He's at that point when he said that, he was setting the day that the judgment event of the flood was going to begin. 120 days. Noah was 600 years old. The world that Noah lived in was a very, very different world than the one that we live in. These opening chapters of Genesis tell us about a fruitful, lush, overgrown, tropical planet in its entirety. The, the world that Noah lived in was fruitful beyond what we could imagine. When we dig up the fossil records, we can see. We see huge, massive insects. Um, later, we're going to get in Genesis and in the promised land, there are grapes so big that it takes two guys to carry them. And the Bible's going to tell us that Abraham looked on the land of Canaan. He goes, that's like the land of Eden. And there were giants, things that were huge, things that were massive. The world was so fruitful. And we have the evidence right underneath our feet. In one worldwide catastrophe, God not only flooded the earth, he buried the earth, and he buried it way underneath the ground, so far down there that we have to go digging down for it to pull up the fossil fuels. And every time we pull up fossil fuels, every time you get out your Kingsford charcoal, to make a steak back on your grill. I want you to think about this. One of those real cold chunks right there could have been something that was living in Noah's backyard at the flood. This story is real. And Noah built this, built this ark for 120 years. You know, as far as we can tell, just him and his three boys. Now, we have three, three of his boys listed, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but that does not mean that these were his only three boys. This means that these were his only three righteous sons. Noah built this boat, and this boat is massive. And every, I mean, as soon as we were reading it, and you, you know, in, in chapter six, when you saw how many cubits it was, you automatically pictured it in your head. You remember the last time you measured out something by cubits, right? Like, honey, get me the cubit tape measure, you know? <laughs> A cubit is the distance between elbow and uh, forefinger. So, um, now, so that means depending how big you were in different cultures, you know, the taller you were in Sweden, a cubit is probably longer than it is in Italy. I'm not saying anything, I'm just saying, okay? I'm not saying anything, I'm just saying. 
um, massive. When it describes the way that it was built, it was not built to be steered. There were no sails. The word that the Bible uses for the ark is the same word that the ark of the covenant is going to happen later in the Old Testament. It's a chest. It's one big floating chest carrying things that God treasured. Ark. God told Noah to get in it seven days before the flood started. And he got in, do you notice he got in the ark when God told him to? And he got out of the ark when God told him to. He did not lean on his own understanding. In all his ways, he acknowledged God. God told him when to get in. For seven days, he sat in there. What was everybody else doing? You know, New Testament tells us they were eating and drinking. They were marrying. They were acting as if nothing was going to happen. Because the day before it happened, the hour before it happened, it appeared as though, like, what, isn't everything, everything is going to go on just like it is the day before? Except it didn't. Scripture tells us that when God created the earth, he separated the waters below from the waters above by putting a firmament between the two of them, which meant he was the one who was personally holding the waters above from the waters below. And what happened at the flood, he stopped doing what he had been doing every other day before this. And the waters that were above the heavens, some sort of water canopy, water vapor, we don't know what those waters above were, but those waters came down. Waters from the great deep came up. And, and the sea level started to raise. It took 40 days for the world to fill up with water. That water filled up so high There was one last mountain peak that finally got covered with water. What do you think it was like for those 40 days? How many times did people run for the high ground thinking that, oh, if I could just get up another 20 or 30 feet, the water's going to stop. Sometimes we talk about the flood story like it's a kid story, like it's a children's story, right? Look at the giraffes are going into the boat. I'm so cute, and there's a rainbow. A French artist, I can't remember his name right now, did an engraving of the flood. He, he painted the last mountaintop. About 10 feet sticking out of the water is a rock, the last mountaintop. On it are four children. In the water is a mother and father trying to lift their youngest child up on top of the rock. Next to these children on top of the rock, there's a tiger. And just only, I mean, this is not, this is not an easy story to deal with. God said, I'm going to blot them all out. And see, one of the things that's challenging about a story like this, the flood story, 
is we have to ask ourselves the question. Now, I want you to think about it just right now for a moment. Who do you sympathize with in this story? Um, where are your loyalties in this story? Is, isn't that hard? Because on one hand, you ask yourself the question like, <laughs> and I mean, the, the Bible is just so straightforward about this. How much patience had God had watching awful and terrible things happen on the planet that he made with the people that he made using all the resources that he had given them in a way that was completely contrary to his holiness and his glory and his beauty and his plan? How many days had he been patient for that to happen? And so for God to declare on one day... In the second month, on the 17th day of the month of the 600 year of Noah's life, for God to say, my patience is now ended. And now I will do the right thing. Are your sympathies with God? Or, when the Bible tells us that All, all of mankind. And if you're here with us last week, we talked about it. this is not 400 people living by the Jordan River. Ten generations of people were on the planet at the same time. This meant that there was no memory loss from generation to generation. Because Noah's father, Lamech, and Adam, the very first human being, lived on the same planet for 50 years. Their lives overlapped. Men lived almost a thousand years. Taking conservative birth rates. We talked about this last week. Potentially the, the, the world population at the time of the flood was potentially larger than it is now. With people who are advanced. Who all spoke the same language. No translation was necessary from continent to continent. There was no loss of development of tools. Some of the very first human beings began to make music and began to form cities. You give this advanced people multiple generations in a gigantic and fertile world. And can you imagine, can you imagine the cities on the coastlines of the world that got buried in this flood? Can you imagine what was there? And for 40 days, the world was filled up with water. And the Bible tells us that for 150 days, the waters prevailed on the earth. And what that means, that's a military term. It means a military victory. These waters were accomplishing something for God. And in chapter 8, verse 1, After five months of the waters prevailing and killing off and burying the entire pre-flood world, then the Bible says God remembered Noah. What does that mean that God remembered Noah? 
You, I mean, you and I know what remembering means, right? It means that somehow our subconscious goes and seeks a piece of information that we have tuned out either purposely, you know, or subconsciously, and all of a sudden something comes back to our minds. Oh, yeah. The Super Bowl is on today, isn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. What does it mean for God to remember something when he never forgets and knows everything, when all knowledge and all wisdom is always his at all times? What does it possibly mean for God to remember for God to remember means that his actions turn away from the flooding and perishing of the pre-flood world to focusing all his activity, not on the judgment of the world, but on the saving and rescuing of Noah and everybody that's on that ark. For 150 days, a miracle wind blew over the whole planet. And this miracle wind that was blowing is what dried out the flood. The 150 days, the ark, which, you know, the scripture tells us that the flood flooded the world so deeply that there was no, there was no mountain that was high enough for the ark to run aground in until the water started to abate. We don't know the ark didn't have a steering wheel nor sails. We don't, we don't know how far did the ark go. Did it make a trip all the way around the world? All we know is it landed on a mountain called Mount Ararat, 17,000 feet in the air. And many people see that this is a fitting landing place. Because in many ways, God is going to give Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives and all these animals the same commission that God gave to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. There are many who think that Mount Ararat, these mountains, are the original location of the Garden of Eden. And they're, they're landed. And after 40 days, you know, Noah opened the window... And, you know, slowly over time, the, you know, these, these birds got sent out, the raven and then the dove got sent out as like a testing mechanism to sort of see, all right, how, you know, how much of the flood waters receded. And I tell you what, everything about the animals and Noah in this story is fascinating to me. How did the animals get onto the ark? Noah was not like the Marlboro man. He didn't jump on a horse and went out sort of roping them all in and dragging them in there. The Bible says that God brought them. Seven pairs of all the clean animals and one pair of all the unclean animals. There was more of the clean animals because these are the animals that God had instituted for sacrificing. And Noah was a worshiping man. He needed more of those animals than he did the unclean ones. Do you know that the rooms, the word that the Bible uses for the rooms on the ark, those are called nests. And did you notice that when they got off, it said that all the families of animals came out of the ark. Since they were on the ark for almost an entire year, it's likely that they, you know, they had children on the ark. Not, whatever the name of animal kids is, I don't know. <laughs> Lambkins and things like that. And Noah got out of the ark when God told him to. Do you know what's the very first thing he did when he got off the ark? Think of what all of his options were. You know? 
Uh, I remember for um, a short time when I served in the Marine Corps, we were deployed to Somalia. It's been about three months there. I remember the feeling that I had when our plane landed back in U.S. soil. You ever seen pictures of guys when they, sometimes when they come back from war or something, and when they get off the plane or off the boat, they get down and they kneel and they kiss the ground? You ever seen that? Yeah, I, that, I had seen it in pictures. I didn't know what it felt like until I came back. Oh, man, to be home again. Can you imagine the feeling that Noah had? Now, granted, this world that he landed in is an entirely different world. It's the first thing he did. The first thing he did was what all of mankind who did not make it to the flood, it's the thing that they would not do. They would not worship him. They would not come to God. They would not give him thanks. They would not glorify him. They would not seek to be made right with God. The very first thing that Noah does, he makes an altar to the Lord. He makes a sacrifice to the Lord. Now this tells us, this does tell us, Noah was not saved through the flood because he was a sinless man. Noah's heart was the, had the same wickedness that every other man's heart did. Noah did not get saved because he was God's favorite, nor did he get saved because he was sinless. Noah got saved because he trusted God. Hebrews 11 tells us that Noah walked by faith. He put his faith and trust that there is only one way to be made right with God, and God is the one who determines what that is. And Noah did it. And you're here today because he did. There's not one human being on our planet that cannot trace their genealogy all the way back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. This is one of the reasons why the sins of ethnic superiority are just so stupid. Because if you trace your family tree back, we can trace our family tree back all to this guy right here. And for one person to think that his family tree is somehow superior because it traveled a different pathway is utterly ridiculous. In spite of our different ethnic backgrounds, we are, we're so much the same. We're all made in the image of God. We all are born with hearts that are depraved, the human heart. I mean, the face of the planet changed. The heart of humankind did not change. Every human who's ever been an ancestor of Noah, which is every single buddy, every, every person in here, every person in the whole world, our hearts are the same. And outside of miracle of God, outside of God taking out our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, there's only two races of people in our world. Only two. Those who have been born again and those who are still in their sins. Only distinction that God sees. And for the first time in this account, in verse 21, 
Noah offers up the sacrifices, and the Bible says the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and, and said in his heart, this is the first time that we get in this whole account that the Lord is pleased. Now, what... I know, this is not exactly a Super Bowl Sunday message. I, under, I understand. What do we take away from this? Who cares? Who cares that this all happened to this guy, you know, when he was 600 years old way over there? Who cares about that? What does it tell us? I mean, Jesus talked about this. One of the things that tells us is that God is extremely patient, but his patience doesn't last forever. And when he runs to the end of his patience and decides it's time to act, nothing can stop him when he is determined to do something. Anybody have a hard time getting your head around waters coming out of the heavens and up from the subterranean so that the entire planet was covered in water again and the entire population of the world gets wiped out? It doesn't, is, I mean, isn't it hard for you to even wrap your mind around that? And even though I can tell you that when they're drilling for oil and digging for coal, that all of that formerly living material that got buried in the flood, it's right there plainly and obviously. Aren't there billions of people in our world who look at that and go, no, 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 that the flood thing never happened. Aren't there? And, and do you know why we have an internal heart motivation to disbelieve an event that's cataclysmic like this? You know why? Because we don't want to imagine an event like this We don't want to see it in our history because we definitely don't want to see it in our future. And everybody in this, everybody in this story, sorry, when I say story, it makes it sound like it's made up. Everybody that this event happened to. They had one relationship in their whole life that was the most important relationship. And that was their relationship to the boat. Everybody in this account, there was nothing more important to them than their relationship to the boat. Noah and his family, for them, that boat was salvation. And everybody else had made a decision about that boat. They made a decision that that boat was completely unnecessary. And isn't Noah being an extremist? What do you think they all thought on day 20? What do you think it sounded like when God closed the door to the ark and sealed it? Why do you think he sealed it? I don't know if you were Noah and you heard, you heard all that was going on outside the boat. Don't you think you would have wanted to open the door? And when the the Lord closed it, it was closed. Okay, can I tell you the worst thing? You're like, wow, it's worse? Can I tell you the worst thing? 
The flood wasn't the worst thing that happened to those people. After they died, something worse awaited them. And that's to live forever under the punishment of God. And they're not different than us. Only difference is the saving vehicle has changed. The human heart hasn't changed, that's for sure. The saving vehicle has. No one should take away from this story that Pastor Seth said in the future, there's another flood coming, and so, honey, I need to buy a really big boat. Nobody better, no, no. What do you need to do? You do need to get into the saving vehicle. And his name is Christ. What everybody, everybody who ever hears this story and really thinks about it in the depth of the meaning that it has should be asking one question. If the world today were flooded with God's holiness and glory as the Bible tells us that it will be at the return of Christ, will you be in his ark or outside of it? No more important decision. And sometimes people will say, honestly, and you might be here, you might be thinking this, a God who could do this to all of mankind Children, women, if he's the one in the ark, no thanks. The Bible tells us that God takes no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. He's a righteous and just God, and the things that were happening needed to be dealt with. And God courageously, in a a holy and just manner, he did it. But did you notice in the story that while mankind is being blotted out, the story doesn't tell us that God is taking pleasure in blotting people out. He doesn't take pleasure in that. There's only one place in here where it says that God took pleasure. In his relationship with Noah. Noah came to him in the right way. Noah made a sacrifice And that sacrifice appeased God's holiness. And because that sacrifice appeased God's holiness, the point wasn't for him to kill the animal. The point was that an animal had to die so that Noah could go in and so that God and Noah could have fellowship with each other. Fellowship with man does bring God pleasure. So it all comes down to this. What have you decided about God's saving vehicle, Jesus Christ? Does the event in the future that he told us about, his return, when the whole world will be flooded with his holiness and glory, do you believe that that's going to happen? And if you're a believer in here, that should be a spiritually mouth-watering thing to think about. There will be a day when his holiness and glory covers our world. It's a, and it will flood the world with his holiness and glory and nothing better will ever happen. What have you cited about Jesus Christ?
And listen, from everything we know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the kind of man that Jesus was, do you think if there was two or three or four ways that you could be saved, don't you think he would tell you? If following Confucius or Buddha or Islam or Christianity or Judaism or Christian science and Tom Cruise um, or Oprah and sending a message out to the universe, if all those pathways were all equal and could get you to God, don't you think that Jesus would say, hey, all paths lead to me, just find one? Do you think he would say it? And yet what did he say? I'm the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. But don't you want to come to the Father? Don't you want to be made right with God? And the Bible says there's only, there's only one way. Admit that you have no right to come to God in your own righteousness and standing. The second is repent. To say the way that I've been trying to come to God, I I cannot come to God on my own. I don't have any righteousness of my own. I am not basically a good person who sometimes spills the milk. In my heart, I want things that I ought not want. And I believe things that I should not believe. And something so deep has to happen to me. That's the only thing. And then to reach out in true faith. That God doesn't take pleasure in punishing the wicked. He will do it because he's the God of justice. God takes pleasure in having fellowship. God takes pleasure in love. And it's out of his amazing justice and his amazing love that we get the cross. God was so serious about sin that he crucified and punished his son for it. And yet on the cross, there's so much mercy that he died, he suffered, he was punished, so you wouldn't have to be. What have you done about that? Would you stand to your feet? Let me close in a prayer. Heavenly Father, I I pray that as we looked at this story, it's astounding. Your great power, your awesome justice, there's nothing that you can't and won't prevail over. And it doesn't matter. Lord, in our day, we see great wickedness around us. We sure do. But who can stop you? Lord, I pray for everybody here who in true faith is in the ark. Never, never let us lose the joy and gratitude that comes from being in the ark. Lord, you, your salvation is such a gift. I pray that for us who are in it, Lord, help us to treasure it. Lord, for anybody who came in here today and right now they're like, I don't. God, I pray would you move on their heart. Give them the gift of repentance and the gift of true faith so that they could reach out to you and come to Christ. And Lord, we do pray Lord, we do long for the day when the world is flooded with your holiness and glory. And you'll deal with wickedness once and for all. 
And there'll be the pleasing aroma of true spiritual worship from all of your creatures. And Lord, as far as we're concerned, we'd love for you to do it now. There's nothing that we're looking forward to more than that. So we, if you came, we wouldn't miss anything in our future. Lord, give us that perspective. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.